0: Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this time that we can look into your word and think about the doctrine of conversion and its relationship to sanctification. And Lord, we pray for open ears and eyes and hearts. We pray, Father, for wills that are um, ready to receive your word, to take action upon it. Father, I pray that you will... Uh, bless our time together. That you'll give me strength of voice and clarity of mind and uh, Lord that you'll just make this time together uh, of genuine spiritual profit uh, to all of us Lord that we will grow in our own walks with you uh, but also be further equipped uh, to serve you as uh, personal ministers of the word uh, which we call counseling. Lord we We just pray for your blessing on our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this breakout session uh, is on the subject of conversion and its relationship to sanctification. I am calling it Conversion, Where Sanctification Begins. uh, Because I believe that in evangelicalism today, the doctrine of conversion has almost been lost entirely. Uh, I believe that we have jumped from uh, a quick presentation of the gospel to people uh, to just accept Jesus. And then they start to begin to experience this thing we call the Christian life. And they have ups and downs and they don't understand uh, where it's all going and where it began. And I think one of the reasons uh, for so much confusion uh, is because we have... Bypassed the the doctrine of conversion in in many cases. I am firmly convinced, after uh, over two years, uh, two decades, excuse me, in pastoral ministry and just as many years in counseling ministry, that we, in many cases, when we are counseling professing believers, I'm becoming more and more convinced that we are counseling people who have not yet been converted. Uh, They think they are believers. They think they are Christians. They believe that they are saved. And yet, as we look at the scope of their Christian life and examine it according to the scriptures, there doesn't seem to be uh, this event which we would call conversion. And uh, so it's, in my opinion, a a very much needed topic that we need to consider. Uh, When we think about authentic biblical counseling, which is what I would like to call it, uh, we need to understand that we are in a position whereby we ought to be looking at the gospel as the power of God to rescue sinners and to take sinners from a state of being spiritually dead in trespasses and sin, and unable to do anything to save themselves, much less sanctify themselves, and to convert them, to breathe new life into them by the power of the Holy Spirit through the new birth, and then to sanctify them to become like Christ. Uh, that's really what the gospel's about. There is no salvation without sanctification. This whole idea that a person can be saved and yet experience no, no change in their Christian life is foreign to the scriptures. The scriptures present salvation as something that is a divine work of rescue rescuing people from sin and placing them on an entirely new path. And so this extraordinary work of God, which we call salvation, uh, must begin with what we call conversion, which is a complete turnaround. It is a, a going in one direction and God intervening and turning around and you go in the opposite Direction. It's a 180. Conversion, I like to say, is the child produced by the marriage of faith and repentance. Uh, One theologian defines it this way. You may have this quote in your notes, I'm not quite sure. But conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. The word conversion itself means turning. Here it represents a spiritual turn, a turning from sin to Christ. The turning from sin is called repentance, and the turning to Christ is called faith. We can look at each of these elements of conversion, and in one sense it does not matter which one we discuss first, for neither one can occur without the other. And they must occur together when true conversion takes place. Okay, so conversion is the child produced by the marriage of faith and repentance. Repentance is a turning away from sin. A faith is a turning to God. And salvation involves both. And I believe that one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons why the doctrine of conversion has been lost for the most part, in evangelicalism, is because the doctrine of repentance is not being preached. Mm -hmm. We are preaching a gospel uh, to to sinners to come to Christ without any repentance. That is not the biblical gospel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Throughout the pages of Scripture, you will not find the good news of God's salvation offered to sinners apart from repentance which is a turning away, okay? So, that's what, what we have here. We have repentance turning away from sin. Faith is turning to God as the as the provider of what we need uh, as a solution to our sin problem. So, you put those together and you come up with conversion. Robert Duncan Culver describes conversion this way. When the contesting football team games change, ends of the field and goalposts, a complete reversal of direction. It is called a conversion. You know that, you football fans know that. That's a conversion right there in the game. This is strictly consonant with biblical and theological use. The idea of a spiritual, moral reversal of direction conversion is endemic in the Bible from the Lord's appeal to Cain... Remember, he said to turn away from sin so that sin would not be his master. In other words, conversion is clearly evidenced throughout the scriptures. Uh, let me give you just a few examples. 2 Chronicles 15.4, it says, In their distress, Israel turned to the Lord God of Israel. They sought him, and he let them find him. Uh, Jonah 3.10 It says that when Jonah preached the message of repentance to the city of Nineveh, the the Ninevites turned from their wicked way. See, there is this turning away from sin to God. Acts 26.18, in Paul's own testimony of his conversion, he says that Jesus commanded him to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul thanks God for the Thessalonian believers who had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So you find the doctrine of repentance throughout Scripture. And the result of repentance and faith is this thing called conversion. It is turning completely around. You're going in this direction and you turn around and you head in the other direction. So God, when he does this rescuing work in the heart of a sinner, he turns the person around and moves them in a different direction. Now, to understand the reason why we need to be converted, why we need this radical transformation. We need to understand the nature of sin. So let me just review that a little bit for you uh, this morning. Some of the characteristics of sin. First, willful independence. Sin is willful independence. We are stubbornly willful people by nature. That That is who and what we are. Think of Adam and Eve. In the very beginning, they sinned against God. What did they do? They chose to do the opposite of what God had commanded them. That is willful independence. We see this as well in Isaiah 53 and verse 6. And this is such an important verse for us to understand in regard to the nature of sin. Because it emphasizes two aspects of sin. That we are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. Okay? We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's a part of our nature. Okay? And sometimes in our counseling, we are working against the Holy Spirit because we're trying to convince people that they are sinners because they sin without exposing their heart to them, which proves to them that they are sinning because they are sinners. (laughs) And so when you teach a person that they are a sinner because they're sin, then what you're going to give to them is behaviorism. You're just going to give them moral correction. You're not going to give them the gospel revolution that is needed in their heart. And so we need to take to work backwards from a person's behavior to their heart to show them that they don't simply need to put off and put on. They need first to be revolutionized from the inside out by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. The problem in a lot of biblical counseling is we are telling unbelievers to put off and put on, and they can't. (laughs) They can't put off and put on because they have no spiritual life inside of them. We have to first have them understand the depth of their sinfulness in their hearts. And that's why I like Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. So we are all like sheep who go astray. That's our nature. But we are also people who have willfully turned against the Lord. So willful independence is a part of sin. This is why John calls sin lawlessness in 1 John three four, because sin is basically acting independently of God, and that's that's the way we are by nature. We want our own way, and we want it now, and we don't, uh, and we're not going to be in favor of, of listening to anybody who tells us anything different, right? We were that way when we were kids, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we're still that way every time we sin against God. We're basically shaking our fists in the face of God and saying, I don't like your way, I want my way, it's better. That's what we do every time we sin. We're not conscious of it. And that just proves the fact that it's so ingrained in our nature. But sin is also selfish and cruel. It's selfish and cruel. It not only demands its way and demands it now, but it demands its own way, regardless of the consequences and the harm it will bring upon the other people around us. That's what sin is like. I mean, think about Cain in Genesis 4. He envied his brother's righteousness and his brother's acceptance with God And in anger against God and against his brother, he murdered his brother. And uh, John tells us, 1 John says that Cain did that because of a failure to love. See? Sin is the opposite of love. Sin is self-centered. Love is other-centered. Total depravity is also a term we need to be reminded of. Uh, Our heart is autonomous, at least it thinks it is. It wants to be autonomous, it wants to be its own boss apart from the authority of God. But it's also enslaved to depravity, as Phil uh, just spoke of in our last session. By nature we are slaves of sin, but now if we know Christ We've been delivered from that slavery and we are now to voluntarily offer ourselves as slaves of Christ. So to be depraved means to be under the influence of sin. To be totally depraved means that every aspect of our being is under the influence of sin. Our mind, our emotions, our will. So from head to toe we have been corrupted by sin. That's what total depravity means. It doesn't mean that every one of us in this room is as bad as we could be. Certainly, we could be much worse. Okay, But it does mean that every part of our being has somehow been infected by sin. Sin is a spiritual cancer that leaves not a single part of our being untouched. It is malignant. Malignant. And it it just, it goes everywhere. It spreads everywhere. That's what total depravity means. And and that's important to remember because we need to understand that sin is more than a choice. It it is an inner power, a drive to want what we want. And that's why also we're making a mistake in counseling uh, when we simply tell a person, well, just, if you're doing this, we'll just stop doing that. And things will just be fine. The problem is, without the power of God in the gospel, they can't just stop doing it. And so, they need to understand that, that deep within them, underneath, behind their actions, their choices, is a magnetic, magnetic pull towards evil. And that's what sin is. And that's what total depravity means. If left to ourselves, where would you and I be? With you know, if left to ourselves apart from the intervention of God in his grace, where would we be? I mean, we can look at our lives and we can see the messes we made. Um in our choices to sin. Now just imagine if all restraint had been pulled away from us and we were left completely to ourselves with no restraining power from God. I mean, we would be a serial murderer waiting for our turn on death row. That's where every one of us would be. Because within us is this magnetic pull towards sin. You know, David said in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So from the very moment of conception, I was a sinner, so that was my nature. And that's why he then goes on to say, Behold, you God, delight truth in the inward being. God doesn't just want us to clean up our act and get our lives straightened out. And I hear this all the time. I hear believers all the time talking about their niece or their nephew or their grandchild and just saying, man, if they just get their life straightened out, they can't get their life straightened out apart from the grace of God and the power of God in the gospel. Now, I understand what they mean, but... It, that the, the frequency with which I hear that phrase betrays a misunderstanding as to the seriousness of sin and the depth of how sinful we really are. And Jeremiah said that our heart is wicked, it's desperately wicked, it's deceitful, and who can know it? Well, only God, only God can fully know how wicked our hearts are. We are professionals, not only at sinning, but we are professionals at deceiving ourselves that our sinful choices are good. That's that's Jeremiah 17.9. Total depravity. But then, fourthly, sin can be characterized by what I would call spiritual Unresponsiveness. (coughs) Uh, this is where total depravity is sometimes called total inability. And, and what that is speaking of is that Ephesians 2 language, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And apart from the rescue of God through the gospel, uh, we would not be saved. Jesus said it this way in John 3. He said, unless the Holy Spirit breathes new life into us, we will remain spiritual corpses. Uh, that's, That's what we are. So, this is talking about the need for the doctrine of regeneration, that is, being born again. Another doctrine that has fallen on hard times in evangelicalism today. We are so enamored with this. Accept Jesus as your Savior and ask Jesus into your heart. When was the last time I asked those of you who listen to Christian radio on a regular time, when was the last time you heard a sermon on being born again? And the new birth. And how dead we are in our sins. And how if God does not Cause us to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. We will never be saved. <clears throat> See? We need to get back to a biblical understanding of sin. And when we do, then the, res- then the doctrines of repentance and conversion will be resurrected as well. let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because I want to show you an example of conversion, a biblical illustration, a biblical example of conversion which took place in the city of Corinth. These are such precious uh, verses for us to understand. Corinth was a thoroughly sinful City, and uh, in fact, uh, when people, when American Christians say, "Boy, Christians have never lived in such hard times," they haven't read their New Testament. They just have it. I mean, you talk about the church being in a minority. Well, go back and read the book of Acts and read about what a city like Corinth, for example, uh, was like. It was noted for its immorality. It contained the temple of Aphrodite, which was the goddess of fertility, which housed 1,000 temple prostitutes in, in a temple, in a religious temple. Its reputation was so well known that to commit sexual immorality was to, quote, Corinthianize. Okay? So if you were sexually immoral in that day, then it was said you had Corinthianized. That's how sinful Corinth was. Okay? That's what its reputation was like. G. Campbell Morgan, the British preacher, said of Corinth, it was one of the greatest cities in the Roman Empire, characterized by wealth, luxuriousness, and lust, by extreme cleverness and the arguments of its philosophers. The language used then was supposed to be the highest form of the Greek language. There was a phrase, he said, of the time, to speak as they do at Corinth, which meant to speak with accuracy and beauty and artistic finish. Corinth was the center of everything intellectual. On the level of their own philosophies. But it was rotten at the heart. Utterly corrupt. Given over to every manner of lasciviousness. We live in Corinthian times. Let's just admit it. We pride ourselves in our intellect and our education. And yet we are in immoral culture just like the Corinthians. But the good news is that the gospel was extremely powerful in that culture. And that's why no matter what's happening in the political scene and in the morals of our society, we need to understand that our hope should never have been in government to begin with and it should never be in the structure of our society. It should be in the power of the gospel. And so, as our culture becomes more and more wicked, our confidence should become more and more in the power of the gospel. And so, you read verses like chapter 6 and verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you, verse 11. I'm, I'm using ESV today, which begins verse 11 with and, but I really prefer it begin with the word but which is what some other translations do, because it is a great contrast here. But such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So the good news is that God in His mercy can and will intervene through the gospel and in His mercy He will save people out of this kind of corruption. He will convert them. He will cause them, by the power of the gospel, to do a 180 and turn and go in the opposite direction. And so, this passage of scripture becomes for us as counselors a great source of encouragement. You know, as, as you and I counsel people who have, through their choices and through obedience to their own lusts, they have become enslaved to sexual immorality, they are idolaters, they are adulterers, they are practicing homosexuality, they are stealing, they are greedy, they are drunkards, they are swindlers, they are drug addicts, they are whatever. You place any of those voluntary... Um, Addictions. Uh, addiction really is just a voluntary bondage to sin. Okay, that's what addiction is. And, and so you take anybody and, and, and addiction has a 101 and more faces to it. Okay? not just drugs, it's not just alcohol. It's, it's any voluntary enslavement to sin we can biblically refer to as an addiction. And, and you, you have, you're working with anybody in that situation, you ought to be going to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and you as a counselor ought to be finding hope in verse 11 that such were some of the Corinthians. God loves to rescue people who cannot rescue themselves. Mm -hmm. We live in a culture that believes God helps those who help themselves. We, We own and read and counsel from a Bible that teaches something very different, and that is that God loves to rescue people who cannot rescue themselves. He loves to help people who have no power in and of themselves to help themselves. So, this passage of Scripture is really critical for our understanding of conversion. Let's look at some of the examples that Paul uses of habitual sins. And I say some of the examples because that's all they are. It's just a short list. We could spend the next three or four hours uh, on a whiteboard. It would have to be every wall in this room would have to be a whiteboard. And we could begin listing off every sin that comes to our mind so these are just examples this is not a complete list but it does give us a good example of how God reaches in and saves people and converts them from enslaving lifestyles okay? first is fornication sexually immoral comes from uh, the word pornos fornicators it okay. refers to those who practice illicit sexual activity. Uh, the term can be used of immoral people in general. And so Paul is warning against all sexual activity that is outside of marriage. That, that's how broad this term is. Okay. Pornos, you, under, you, you recognize the word right away, right? Mm-hmm. It's the word from which we get pornography, which is printed or visual material. Uh, containing explicit description or display of sexual organs or activity. It is material that is used to, to stimulate a person's thoughts in order to get them to act a certain way. Okay, So, fornication is something that is not to be a part of the Christian's life. Paul is saying, uh, Do you not know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, the sins that I am about to reveal to you, Paul is saying, are totally inconsistent with the Christian life. It is instead consistent with someone who would not be inheriting the kingdom of God. So fornication is, is one of the sins that as we counsel people, we are compelling them to turn away from. But where did Jesus say fornication begins? Begins in the heart. Yeah. He says from within. Mark seven twenty one. Out of the heart proceed fornications. Now that doesn't mean that we don't take radical steps to deal with the stimuli that are in our lives and in the lives of our counselee. But you can have a perfectly clean environment and still have a fornicator inside of the heart. And so remember, don't just be working on the outward. You've got to be working on the issues that are lying within the heart. Adultery. He mentions adultery. Uh, Adultery is different from fornication in that it violates a marriage covenant. So one of the people who's involved in the fornication is married, and that's what makes it uh, adultery. The reason adultery is so serious is, is that it brings a third party into the marriage bond. See, it's God who said that a husband and a wife become one flesh. So adultery introduces a third party into the covenant that was supposed to be involving just the two. Two people and God. Now a third person comes into this covenant. And that's what makes adultery so serious. It's a violation of that sacred covenant. According to the New Testament, marriage is a picture of the love of Christ for his church or the relationship of Christ to his bride, and that's why even the New Testament uses such strong language in referring to adultery. It says in Hebrews 13:4, "Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers; God will judge." That's New Testament language. Okay? And it's important to remember that because some people think that the God of the New Testament is softer than the God of the Old Testament. It's the same God. He's the same God. And he hates adultery now just as much as he did in the Old Testament. Okay? Adulterers are not stoned to death now as they were in the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean that God's hatred for the sin has diminished. And then there's homosexuality that's mentioned in uh, verse 9. Nor men who practice homosexuality. And there are actually two words that are that are used uh, in this context. And one refers to the effeminate or the soft, literally, the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. And the homosexual is the active or recruiting partner partner in the relationship so even in a homosexual relationship if if you're aware of any that in your own family or your your uh, acquaintances you will see that one person in that partnership is more domineering than the other one is more one one is more of the recruiter or the actor the pursuer one is more passive and and you'll see that in even in that relationship and um, God is forbidding in this text, as well as multiple other texts in Scripture, the uh, the practice of same-sex behavior, um, same-sex relationships that go beyond friendship, cross-dressing, sex change operations, and even all the gender confusion that is in our culture today is all spoken uh is forbidden, spoken against by the word of God. But the good news is that like these other sinners that are listed here, so are the homosexuals who, in verse 11, Paul says, such were some of you. There were former homosexuals in the church at Corinth. See, that's the power of the gospel. And, that's, and that reminds us, too, of how important it is for us, who, we who claim to love Christ, who then also claim to love sinners, and claim to be gospel lovers, that we should be offering the gospel freely to all and compelling them to come to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness, for reconciliation. And then there are idolaters. He mentions in verse nine, idolater is simply someone who who worships an image. Um, but we know from other scriptures that it goes way beyond the worship of, of image. We are images. We are commanded in the New Testament to flee idolatry. So even us as believers, there are, there are things in our lives which are idols. An idol is anything that we seek to please more than God. So, that too, we could fill all the walls in this room with lists of the idols. You know, it was John Calvin who said that the human heart is an idol factory. And there's just no limit to the idols that we will create. That's part of our sinfulness. And then there's greed. Greed. Uh, He he speaks of thieves or greedy and swindlers in verse 10. And you take all of those words and you put them together and you basically come up with uh, the concept of people who are willing to do dishonest things to get things that they should work for. That's really what stealing is. Stealing is the lazy way to get stuff. You're not willing to work for it. And so you'll, you will swindle someone out of it. You'll steal. And uh, it, it finds its root in covetousness. That's the, the heart issue there. And drunkenness is mentioned in verse 10. And the Bible always puts drunkenness in the category of sin. So no matter what conclusions you come to in regard to a Christian's relationship to alcohol, please understand that the Scriptures always, always, always forbid the misuse of alcohol to the point where it controls you. We are not to be uh, filled with... or or held captive by alcohol or drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's an issue of control. Of course, in our culture, we don't hear the term drunkenness very often, do we? We don't even use the term drunkard much because now it's alcoholic. People aren't drunkards anymore. People aren't, people aren't drunkards who, who began to make wrong choices and became enslaved to alcohol. People are now alcoholics who have now this disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they don't need redemption. <clears throat> they need therapy. And, and so we need to understand that, that that's a huge problem. That's a huge problem among Christians today, this whole idea of, of the disease model being used for counseling. So we need to be discerning and more careful uh, in our language. Ed Welch uh, does a good job of dealing with that in his book on addictions, and he brings out some of the um, the history of the Alcoholics Anonymous. movement and how the disease, the whole disease model was created and now really imposed upon us. And then verbal abuse is also mentioned as one of these uh, sins. It's referred to as reviling in verse 2, nor revilers. A reviler is a person who uses uh, their tongue as a weapon. Their weapon of choice is their tongue. They may not have any guns in their houses. They may not have any other kinds of weapons. But their tongue is an incredibly powerful weapon. You know, we heard it when we were kids. Sticks and stones may, be, may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the biggest lie. You and I know that's the biggest lie we've ever heard. We have all spoken words that hurt more than sticks and stones. And we have all had words spoken to us that hurt us way more than sticks and stones would have ever hurt us. And then Paul ends with a practical warning. Uh, well, the, con- the whole context of this is a practical warning when he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So, um, he says this, these kinds of sins are inconsistent with being a Christian. This is part of your past. Such were some of you. And yet, in chapter 5, Paul mentions all of these sins as being grounds for church discipline. So that's the practical warning here. Is when we are counseling people who, who have surrendered themselves and become enslaved to these kinds of sins through their choices, that if they do not repent, if they do not change, then these become grounds for church discipline, which of course in our day and age has also fallen on hard times. Um, Too many churches are not willing to practice. A biblical church discipline lovingly but firmly coming alongside uh, one another and saying "Your, your behavior is inconsistent with the word of God. It's inconsistent with what it means to be a Christian. And to help them to change. Now... Let's move on to verse 11, because that was, that was the illustration of conversion. Okay, those are just examples. But you can you see how God reaches in and rescues and converts people? This should give us so much hope in the power of the gospel. Now let's look at the changes that come about because of conversion. Verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now, notice God's transforming work in three ways. First, God regenerates dead sinners and forgives them. Okay? Paul says, you were washed. That is referring to the doctrine of regeneration the new birth. So, God breathes his life into sinners by the washing of regeneration. And and the, the tense that's used here in the Greek shows that it is a decisive event that happened in the past with permanent ongoing results. So, the moment that we came to, to faith in Christ, we turned from our sin and we turned to Christ and we were converted. We were regenerated. We were uh, made new, washed. Made completely new. This is the same thing Paul was talking about in Titus 3, and uh, verse 6, when he speaks of the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And this is speaking of forgiveness. We have been washed of our sin. Uh, Revelation 1.5 says that that Christ has released us from our sins by His blood. Isn't that a wonderful... Mm -hmm. I love that verse. And Micah says that God has taken our sins and cast them in the depths of the sea. Where are our sins right now? They're at the bottom of the ocean, washed in the blood of Christ. Brand new creatures. And and so from a guild perspective, it doesn't matter what our life was like before we were saved. Now consequences may remain. You know that that's that's part of the, the principle that you reap what you sow forgiveness doesn't always erase all the consequences you know when a drunkard gets saved he doesn't necessarily get a new liver okay he might still die um, but he can be completely forgiven and released and free and then God sets sinners apart as his own possession we were sanctified. That's what the word sanctified means. It means to make holy, to consecrate. And, and the Bible uh, speaks of three kinds of sanctification. The emphasis in this conference has been upon the second... Um, <clears throat> phase of sanctification, but let me just walk you through all three of them because it's very important that we understand. There is a threefold sanctification in our lives as believers. First there is positional sanctification and that refers to God's calling apart a sinner unto himself. Okay? So he sanctified us when he called us to himself through the gospel. He set us apart Mm -hmm. from the world. Okay? That's positional sanctification. That's what it means when the New Testament calls us saints. Hagias, holy ones. Not because we always act like saints. okay, But positionally before God, because He looks at us uh, as being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, we are called holy ones. okay. That's positional sanctification. The second is progressive. And that's what we've been talking about the most throughout this conference is is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit conforming us to the image of Christ. Okay? So, we are sanctified and we are being sanctified. Got it? And then thirdly, we will be sanctified. There's an ultimate sanctification that we would call glorification. And that refers to our standing before God someday when, according to 1 John 3, we will be like Him when we see Him. Right? So, when you, when you hear sanctification, remember, we're talking about three things. We, we have been sanctified... Set apart by God in Christ for God. We are being sanctified, which is a lifelong process from the moment of salvation to death. That's the process of becoming like Christ. And then when when we die or if we're alive, when the Lord returns and we see him face to face, we will be fully sanctified, fully glorified. And sin will no longer be an issue. Isn't that going to be a glorious day? Yes. Don't you just long for that day? Mm -hmm. When you don't have to battle anymore. War against sin. So that's God setting a sinner apart. And then thirdly, notice in verse 11, God declares sinners righteous in Christ. You were justified. Justified. Justification is a legal act whereby God declares us who are sinners righteous on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the moment we believe, God grants to us the righteousness of Jesus and credits it to us as if it was our own. And He declares us righteous. That's what it means to be justified. And that's why, as Phil said in the last session, it's so important for us to remember the difference between justification and sanctification, (coughs) the middle sanctification. Justification is a one-time event whereby God declares us righteous in Jesus Christ because of being united with Jesus Christ. And now we are being sanctified, which is a process of becoming like Christ. And this is all the work of God. Notice that. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at the last part of verse 11. And by the Spirit of our God. See, from beginning to end, Paul wants us to be very clear on this. That all of this phenomenal work of rescuing sinners is by the grace of God. It's not by our works. And it's not by our efforts. And yes, we are very active in sanctification. That middle part of sanctification. Because we are called to be obedient. It is the Spirit of God who gets the credit. When there is change that happens in our lives. So, um, pray with me, will you please? That in our churches and in our lives as counselors. That throughout evangelicalism that God will somehow bring a revival of the doctrine of conversion. I think it is so needed. appreciate you coming today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us such hope in the power of the gospel to convert sinners. Like us, Lord, we who were once enslaved to our sin and in in darkness, Lord, and You brought the light of the Gospel to us. And Your Holy Spirit used the Word of God to open our eyes and to move our wills to trust in the Lord Jesus, to, to turn from our sin and to turn to You in faith. Lord, make us better ministers of the Word of God to the people that You bring into our lives.